Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello, and welcome to the second reading podcast for the week of August 10th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm welcome, happy to welcome back Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Are you ready for back to school, Josh? When is back to school? That is a good entree. Excellent setup. (laughs) Uh, Today, I think we're going to start by talking about back to school. Um, One of the big policy stories in the state is the looming return of K through 12 and for that matter, higher ed to uh, back to school. And we want to talk a little bit today about how this is going to happen about uh, across the state to the extent that we know that. But it's probably you know, one of the pressing matters, I think, in terms of public policy right now, how it's going to happen, what the impact will be on the kids themselves, uh, obviously, how it's going to be shaped by the public health situation going in, but on the other end, how it may impact the public health situation. And then ultimately, uh, our usual themes here, um, what the impact of how this all plays out is on politics. There's already a lot of politics on the input side, it'd be interesting to see what the politics look like once we see what the outputs are. You know, so I think in summary, there's a lot writing on this, uh, on how this goes. Let's start a little bit by talking about what the public thinks. We've done some polling now as school is getting closer. There's a lot, there's a lot more national polling going on. You know, we found out what people thought in Texas, and that was that about 65% of Texans, when we asked whether school was, they thought it Texans thought it was safe to send the kids back to school. 65% thought it was unsafe. 35% said safe. And that was back in late June. I kind of think before people had really thought about the reality and, you know, the situation was still fluid and, and bad. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, but the other thing is, you know, contextually, you know, that kind of fell in the middle in terms of, you know, we asked about, I think, you know, 10 to 14 different activities that people could engage in. We just wanted to get a, a, you know, sort of, a heat check of whether people thought this was safe or unsafe. So at the high end of safety, you know, 72% of Texans said it was safe to go grocery shopping. At the low end, 16% said it was safe to go to protests. That's a separate conversation for another day. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe <laughs> a little more a little complicated. Bit of a, an outlier in, a, in getting other dimensions in there. Yeah, yeah but the, the second lowest item in terms of safety was 21% of people thought it was safe to attend an indoor event. So 35% saying it's safe to send children to school is basically in the middle, not as safe as maybe, you know, let's say eating at a restaurant or staying at a hotel, according to Texans on average, but safer than maybe going to a gym or a bar or a movie theater. You know, I don't know that we've talked about this. What do you, you know, as I look at these and I remember, you know, we, I guess we did talk about this a little bit when we got the result back, but you know, there's kind of a familiarity or necessity breeds risk insensitivity at work here. I mean, if you look at the things that scored high, you know, go to work and going grocery shopping were among, got among the highest safety ratings. These are things that more people have kind of had to do right now. 
in the middle of that is get a haircut. And I don't really, you know, I've never quite understood what the rush to get haircuts was. Um, not that I don't, you know, enjoy a good regular haircut in the, yeah. you know, in the, in the small chance that my stylist was to hear this podcast, I enjoy the experience when I went regularly, it was very valuable to me, but when people were really just chomping at the bit to go get a haircut, I got to say, I didn't really understand the risk equation, but the point here being, you know, everybody was still kind of going grocery shopping. I mean, there are people that can afford to get groceries delivered. I'm just wondering if you, you know, if you think that has an impact on it, I'm not sure. I mean, there's something about, well, I've got to do this anyway, and it doesn't make me wonder if that's going to impact kids going back to school, even though the kids are not as subjective and first person as those other experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what you're talking about here, I mean, I think is only sort of scratching at the surface of the complexity of trying to understand how people, you know, assess risk in this environment, you know, and, and like, I mean, we could talk about this for 30 minutes easily, so we'll try not to. But I mean, I think, you know, what you're talking about is one possibility, right? So one dimension of this is that there's activities that people, you know, sort of either a have to do and therefore have like, you know, already broken the seal, if you will, they've already, they've already yeah. gone grocery shopping because they have to, they didn't get sick. They've got to go. I went again. to the HEB and I survived it. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, but, but I mean, you know, I think, but there's other aspects to this. And again, it's not going to affect, you know, every single person the same way, each of these elements. But then the other piece of it is, you know, you think within each activity, how, you know, you think about how much control do I have over the interaction? How much to control does, you know, let's say the entity that I'm interacting with, uh, you know, have over the nature of my interactions with other people, right? So if you think about, you know, about going grocery shopping, ultimately, you know, we're, you know, I mean, not to plug HEB, they don't need me, but we're kind of lucky in Texas to have a, you know, a pretty big, well thought out, heavily supply chained HEB that kind of says, this is the way we're going to do this. And a bunch of other grocers too, basically kind of quickly said, hey, we're going to start ramping up curbside pickup, all these things that kind of made people say, okay, they've got this under control you know, they can't say the same thing for going to, you know, pick a random bar out of a hat, right? Where they can't control the bar nor the patrons at the bar. And school, I think, kind of falls somewhere. I mean, I think what you're seeing here is it actually kind of moves to the national numbers. I think school, and especially when we asked about it, which was late July, falls somewhere in the middle. I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, you've got a, a population that, you know, you know, according to some people is less at risk for the coronavirus themselves, at least in terms of the symptoms they might experience in children, right? Which is, that seems to be true in terms of rates of death and things like that, you know, so you've got, but on the other hand, they're children and they can't make a choice themselves. And generally we try to regret bad outcomes with children to, you know, we have less tolerance for bad outcomes with children. I mean, period, right. right? So we're not willing to put them into danger since they can't make the choice themselves. On the other hand, there's this other element of, well, you know, the schools and the state are going to control that interaction, right? Yeah, put a pin and in so, that. <laughs> we'll put a pin in that. But the idea here is, you know, theoretically, there's an actor there who's going to, you know, presumably provide right. some kind of guarantees of safety. Now, in July, you know, that was a very open question. Also, I mean, at that point, it wasn't even clear whether, you know, I mean, there was, you know, obviously a lot of move at that point to sort of push the idea that everyone's going back to school, but no decisions had been made. Since then, you know, and as I think people have waited to get more instruction from their state legislatures, from the president, from their local school districts, basically anyone who has some information, that's governor. also, and that's also part of the problem here. There's a, a lot of different information sources kind of say not exactly the same things about this. What you found was nationally, uh, sort of at the end of July, so about a month later, you know, basically when adults nationally were asked whether they support or oppose uh, reopening public schools in the fall, 
55% opposed it, 44% supported it. Okay, about 50-50 split. When, about a little bit later, July 31st to August 3rd was this was the next poll, so a little bit, you know, very end of July, beginning of, Aus, of August. And these are both as, the Ipsos Axios polls, right? Right, and these are, na- these are Ipsos at, of, of adults nationally, and they ask, how much risk, how much of a risk to your health and well-being do you think the following activities are right now because of the coronavirus? And one of the things, sending your child to school in the fall, 30, and this is, I think was mostly, actually, I think this was only asked of uh, parents, although honestly, looking at our data, there's actually no difference make between a difference. parents. Doesn't make a difference. Parents, not parents. So just to set that aside. But anyway, 39%. I don't have any kids and I care about them. Well, yeah, of course you do. You're a caring person. Uh, 39% of adults said that this posed a large risk. Sending children back to school was a large risk to your health and well-being. 27% said a moderate risk. Only 13% said there's no risk to this. And so that's kind of, I think, where we are at this point in terms of and the, the basically, you know, I mean, I'll, I would say if you're going to say take all this and what's, you know, what's sort of the the boilerplate, you know, where people are, people aren't sure. Yeah. Is basically, and I would say they're probably right to be unsure. Right? Right. And, so, and you know, you mentioned, you know, as we look at how this is unfolding in Texas, you know, I, you know, they're not, the process of making these decisions is not providing an enormous amount of reassurance, I don't think. No. As you were saying, there's no, there's a lot of cross currents as you were going through some of the, the the risk assessment stuff a minute ago. I mean, as of now, decisions are being made at the district level and consultation, no doubt, with schools, but at the district level, within a framework set by the state through the Texas Education Agency. So the way it looks right now, schools have a window for a start date, but they can adjust that start date as AISD, Austin Independent School District, mm-hmm. just did that, other districts prominently have done that. And as I understand it, they can use remote learning for the first eight weeks, but then they'll need an extension approved by TEA if they want to use a, a wholly remote learning model going forward. And they're also going to have to make up the weeks that they missed. And then they have to make up the weeks late. Yeah. If they start later, you mean? Yeah. In other words, yeah, they they can't just not say we're going to give up that time. Right. right. They still have to follow the state state guidelines for contact hours and all of this. Mm -hmm. So... In some ways, I mean, I think it's one might think, well, that seems relatively straightforward and, you know, an okay adjustment to all this uncertainty that we're talking about. But it's actually taken us a bit of work to get this and a lot and a lot of political noise. Yeah, I mean, this is a great example of, you know, building the plane while you're flying it. Right. I mean, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I think one of the difficulties, I mean, there's a lot of difficulties here. Right. And, and, and this is the thing about this. I mean, we kind of keep talking about this. There is no one version of this. And I think, you know, the state approach kind of, I mean, in some ways highlights the, this. The reality is that, you know, on the one hand, you can see, you know, the state basically wanting to give school districts the flexibility, especially to open if they want to. And by and if they want to, it means like, you know, look, if you're in a a county or an ISD where there are no confirmed coronavirus cases, which is basically none, but there's, you know, a handful that have very few cases. Very few now. Yeah. But a few. you know, I mean, ultimately one thing that the coronavirus has kind of made apparent, I think to a lot of people is, is the, is the fact that the public school system is also our childcare system. And if you want people to work and they also have kids, you kind of need to figure out something to do with these kids. Uh, and so, you know, part of it is in some areas of the state that might make a ton of sense in a place like, you know, let's say Harris County or, you know, where they still have a large number of cases, it might not make as much sense and they need some flexibility. But ultimately, as you know, let's say just a, a citizen trying to assess risk here, 
you know, you're sort of getting the sense from the state level that, hey, everything's going to move forward safely, but we're definitely moving forward. We're not trying to stop. We're not trying to preemptively stop school openings. But also check with your local school district because they may start you late. They may start you hybrid. And also this might change after they start. And that's the other piece of this is, you know. And, and this happens with an overlay of a public health conversation that's also not, you know, not just about schools, but when schools come up, you're getting vastly different signals from both political leadership and the public health. I mean, I've heard many prominent public health figures say that in areas where the virus is still, you know, running rampant and, you know, not being controlled, which is a lot of areas, that there should be blanket policies of limiting in-person schooling, period. Mm-hmm. And that seems to not be happening anywhere that I've seen. Well, and that's the sort of thing that's, you know, I mean, sort of inexplicable, both from a policy, but also a political standpoint, right? I mean, you're, you know, I, mean, I think one of the sort of, I mean, one of the common, you know, observations, I would say, of the last week or so, and I mean, you can kind of, if you read about, you know, if you read a lot of politics and commentary, you'll see this, is this, is this idea of, well, if, you know, if we're definitely going to go full bore ahead with sending kids back to school, that's going to become a pretty clear evaluative criteria of how we're handling the coronavirus. Because, I mean, to the extent that there have been, you know, let's say, differences in, of opinion about how serious the virus is and, you know, the reality of case counts and all that kind of stuff. I mean, ultimately, you know, once you start sending the kids back to school, if you can't keep the schools open, it's hard to say you're doing a good job containing the virus. Right. And so this becomes a bit of, you know, an evaluative component. But that's the interesting thing to me about the politics of this in some way, which is that, you know, in the rush to get kids back to school, I mean, one of the things that basically the state and the, you know, backed up by the attorney general have said is, hey, you know, public health authorities can't preemptively keep schools from opening. Now, however, if the schools open and there's an outbreak, then the public health authorities can come in and close it. Well, I mean, that leads some people to say, why are you waiting for that to happen? If that's a possibility. And then I think a lot of the superintendents, if you know, the, again, the articles I'm reading, the interviews with them are saying, well, I rely on the county health authorities to tell me what's safe and what's not. Right. And, and so, the attorney general's guidance was you're more than welcome to talk to them and you can listen to them, but it's not their decision. They don't have authority. They are consultative at those early stages. And, and so... You know, I mean, I, I think, you know, before, you know, I kind of want to get in. I mean, that leads to some degree, you know, directly to the partisanship and the politics of this. But I think, you know, I think before we get to that, the other yeah. overlay we have to think about is that, you know, class and economic equality is that, you know, the same force, socioeconomic forces that shape K through 12 ed in the state and have shaped it for ever, basically, mm-hmm. because of the way schools are organized and attendance is you know, schools are administered, is at play here. Lower income families are less equipped to bear the cost of remote education from the equipment to flexibility to support and supervise kids. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, the daycare factor, which looms large. Right. Um, You know, less well-off school districts have fewer resources in terms of both economic and social capital to create safe and effective environments for schools that are choosing hybrid or in-person learning. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, if it's going to work, it's going to be hugely expensive, and those well, resources are not there. 
Well, that's right. And not to mention the fact, I mean, you know, this is the nature of the fact that, you know, schools are populated by the geographies in which they're placed. Right. And we know that, you know, housing is is segregated, you know, by socioeconomic status and socioeconomic status is, is highly correlated with race. And so ultimately, you know, some of the schools that are the least resource equipped to deal with this, both in terms of, you know, I mean, outright resources, but even in terms of the quality and size of the facilities relative to the size of the student bodies, right? The, you know, sort of large overcrowded, you know, where are there more overcrowded classes and classrooms, right? Automatically that creates a bigger problem for a virus that is, you know, fed by close yeah. social contact, right? And so, you know, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but ultimately, I mean, one of the things I think that's unfortunate about this whole debate is the reality of the fact that whenever we talk about it just as open schools or don't open schools, you know, well, ultimately these schools are facing significantly different problems. At the same time though, you know, the solution can't necessarily be, well, we're gonna open all the affluent schools, right? right. And we're not gonna open all the schools where there's, high, where there's higher risk. Well, because ultimately if we do that, there's gonna be a huge equity problem that no one wants to deal with. But at the same time, you have to go and say, well, what's, what's the cost if we ignore that? Well, and the truth of the matter is that, you know, affluence isn't gonna guarantee, you know, no, it's going to give no. you advantages, but even then affluence isn't right. going to guarantee you. I mean, I would not, I would be surprised if we don't see outbreaks in the schools that decide to gamble on that and say, we're, we have more resources, we can do this right. And then it goes south on them. Right? Yeah. I mean, I know that I was talking to a reporter, uh, I think with the San Antonio Express news last week, who had gone out and, and basically, you know, informally surveyed, I guess, what the ISD commissioners are the commissioners what are the, the head of the isd is that right is it a commissioner uh no they're superintendents Su superintendents that's right as the word was flipped in my mind anyway he'd gone out and you know they probably surveyed. like to be commissioners it's kind yeah, of yeah sure it's well it's, I don't know. Of, super, it's, a, it's a more highly ranking name although superintendent say has a super ring yeah i guess it depends anyway okay so the other side but anyway you know he went out and talked to a bunch of superintendents and they had been surveyed you know they've been doing these pulse surveys in the various larger districts at least to kind of see where parents are on this question and they had broken the data down by race and they were finding that generally you know well they weren't breaking it down by race but they were breaking it down by the the race of the school or the predominant races of the school and they were finding that you know in schools with higher shares of uh students of color there were higher shares of parents saying they were afraid to send their kids back to school you know, well, and, that, and, that, and we could see that in our data too, right? I right. mean, that, that pattern was evident in the polling that we did in June. You know, so I don't, you know, so I, I think that's, that's very much at play here and, and it's, seeping into well, the, it's seeping into the coverage, but I think, I'm not sure we're seeing it seep into the policy yet. Well, because I'm not, sure, I'm not sure we're seeing much rhyme or reason in the policy other than trying to keep, trying to define what the lanes are and keeping people in those lanes, well, frankly. But, but I think that's, level. but that's right though, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, if you think about it, you know, policy is complicated. Politics is about being simple, usually. I mean, usually I always think, you know, I, you can disagree. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, to me, I always, I mean, this is like a rule of thumb for me and you can disagree with this 100%, but like, you know, if you've got two arguments and one requires a sentence and the other requires two sentences, I don't know anything else about it. I bet on the one that's one sentence, generally. You know, the more explaining you need to do, the more difficult it is. And I mean, like, and ultimately, I actually think that's part of the difficulty here. Because look, even if we, let's say, let's say it's true that, you know, kids are asymptomatic and have a really low complication, I mean, like exceedingly low, so low that we're, you know, we're setting aside, you know, how many kids need to get terribly sick for this to be okay, which is ultimately the policy discussion you'd actually have to have to think about this. But, you know, uh, even, 
setting all of that aside, the issue here is not necessarily that the kids are going to get sick. It's the fact that the kids are going to go home and get their parents sick, get their grandparents sick. And if you think about, again, the same things we're talking about here, who's likely to live in a multi-generational home? Who's likely you know, to basically be in a community where they're more, you know, more likely to be surrounded by their elders, you know, and I mean, that's not a Hispanic only thing or no. an African-American only thing at all. But ultimately, you know, that's actually, it's the second order effects. And, and really people aren't talking about that when people say, well, you know, kids don't get that sick, so it's fine. Well, that's not actually from a public health standpoint where the concern lies here, but this gets too complicated. I mean, and when you're really just talking about send the kids to school or not, we're not talking about who needs to send their kids to school. We're not talking about whether the schools are able to absorb them. We're not talking about second order effects in terms of spread beyond just the kids. I mean, we're talking about with the teachers, but it kind of just sort of stops as if this is some sort of an isolated cluster. Like, well, we may have to close the school. It's like, and also the town may get overrun. I mean, that's, and that's not the conversation that's being had right now because it's too complicated because really ultimately the virus isn't contained. Well, I mean, I guess that's where I'm wondering about this, you know, the politics policy distinction you made there. I mean, I, you know, on one hand, we've said on this podcast and discussed, you know, multiple times, you know, the difficulty people have in thinking systemically or thinking about, right. you know, use the term second order effects. I mean, thinking about, you know, relatively complex systems, really systems at all. And that's really mm -hmm. what this is. Uh on the other hand, maybe I'm just an egghead, but I don't think it's that complicated to tell people kids don't live at their schools and they go home and they can carry the virus to other people. Yeah, I mean, when you say it like that's that, a long sentence, but it's only one. Well, and it, and it, you know, and frankly, it leads me, you know, to the, you know, to, to feel like, you know, we can't in good conscience talk about the political overtones and not talk about the degree to which people are willfully simple, you know, oversimplifying or mis being misleading about things. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to think that anybody that stands up and says either kids can't get it or if kids get it, they don't get very sick is, you know, as a public official has not been told multiple times that it's a little more complicated than that and that it's not that much more complicated. Well, I mean, I would, I would, I half agree with you is that, I mean, the way you phrased it, not complicated. And I would say, you know, objectively true, right? I mean, again, they don't live at school and that's the thing, but ultimately then the question becomes what, I mean, once you start allowing in other considerations into that, you know, that calculation, well, you know, then it becomes very political again. And it's not so simple, right? It's like, you know, okay, if we open schools and the rate of death amongst, let's say, you know, un the under 18 population from COVID is let's, and I'm just making this up. I don't know what it is. Just to be clear, I'm just making it, but let's, yeah, <laughs> X or but like 0. 0.000 X percent or something, right? I mean, ultimately someone's got to go, we have a lot of public school students in Texas. You got to do a calculation and say, well, okay, that means, you know, Y number of students would die. Now that's one thing we could bring into it that makes it more complicated, right? The other thing that we could bring into it is, I mean, ultimately this is kind of underlying all this is some notion of like people's liberty to be risky. Well, I understand trade-offs, sure. Yeah, but I mean, but that's, but I mean, ultimately the question becomes, you know, I think for some people would say, you know, hey, I understand there's a risk to me and my family, but I, I want my children to continue. Well, and that's, education. and that's, and that's another thing. And that's, and that's, and that I'm willing, that's a conversation I'm willing to have. I guess, you know, what I'm zeroing in on is, you know, the multiple messages that are out there, you know, including, you know, from some of our top elected officials, 
mm-hmm. and not, you know, not not as much in the state, although I've seen it from legislators, saying that it's not a big deal because kids don't get sick. Yeah. And the reality <laughs> you know. is, I mean, well, and the reality is, I mean, I think the, 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 the more, you know, I mean, one of the more reasonable messages to my mind would be to start asking, look, who who needs their kids to be back in school? Because that's really the fair thing. I mean, that actually speaks to equity too, which is ultimately some people can absorb the cost, both of, you know, remote learning and also, you know, being able, being having their kids at home all the time and basically not, at, you know, in the public schools. And some people can't, right? And that's just, that is fundamentally a reality here. And, you know, I mean, the thing that I've sort of thought about a lot is, you know, especially for these schools is, you know, for these schools that have a mix of students to the extent that, you know, the schools do, which in Texas, Schools are pretty segregated, so you know, unlikely. But in schools, but not universally, have, yeah, not universally. But in schools that do have a mix, honestly, you know, their success at reopening kind of requires people who can keep their kids at home to keep them at home, because the schools aren't really big enough to accommodate social distancing and full enrollment as it is, right? I mean, it's not as though I mean, I, you know, I don't know, right. last time you were in a Texas public school, I've been in relatively frequently. It's not like these rooms have an extra, you know you know, let's say 200, 300, a thousand square feet of space to spread the desks out six feet apart. Right. And so, yeah, that's you know, not, that's not happening. But ultimately this is a much more complicated discussion than anyone's really having at a public level. And for that matter, you know, the, you know, that applies to higher ed. I mean, I think we'll probably yeah, just you know, going to talk about that, but we should probably, you know, let that go for time's sake. But, you know, we should mention though, that there's also considerable anxiety in back to school about what's going to happen in colleges and universities around the country. And that has also continued to be a moving target as, you know, plants have been made and unmade on the terrain of the, uh, of where the virus is, you know, clearly there are also major public health risks at work here, particularly a school four year schools with large numbers mm-hmm. of students that are residential, you know, you've got communities. I mean, there's a pretty good, piece in the New York Times, I think last week about college communities now weighing, you know, not wanting everybody to come back for the public health risks, but also looking at if people don't come back, what are the economic hazards, which is, you know, another example of the complicated policy issue. Well, and and right. And and the main, you know, difference here is the fact that, you know, it's sort of not a girl, not yet a woman, right? That's a Britney Spears song, to be clear. But the idea here is, you know, these are, these are not, it's a Britney Britney Spears Spears. song. Some people might know. Uh, yeah, but I think anyway, that's Britney's first appearance in the podcast. Well, I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, but this is the thing you're dealing with 18 year olds. So, so, I mean, the problem is, is that these are technically adults who can make their own decisions right. about how they're, what they're going to do and how they're going to proceed, but also just barely and just legally. It is, you know, and the reality of, yeah, you know, yeah, if you're talking about freshmen, yeah. Yeah. If you're talking about freshmen, I mean, even oh, sure. <laughs> I don't want to make anybody mad. Well, I, that's not true. But anyway, but I mean, the other, yeah, I was gonna say too late. But on the other hand, you know, everybody's talking about the, you know, the college experience and moving these kids along and they have to get back to college. And for some kids they do for all the same reasons we're talking about in terms of equity and access and and everything at the, you know, K through 12 level still applies in college. Just because you're in college doesn't mean you have access to internet or a safe place to study and learn. At the same time, all this idea, this talk about, you know, got to get the kids back to college. Well, you know, all the patterns of social life at college are going to be, you know, either erased or completely, you know, changed. And so, you know, on the one hand, you'd say, well, the question hey, is, can, and can you do that? Well, again, well, I mean, well, that's the gonna, real question, yeah, right? On, right? I mean, I would put it, you know, just to, yeah, I'll, no, I'll do this right. without Britney Spears or a gender Aww. reference and say, no. you know, on one hand, we are dealing with adults. So the problem poses differently 
yes. at the higher ed or, you know, near adults in the, you know, sub 18, few sub 18 folks that show up for college. On the other hand, the social patterns we associate with college life, especially residential college life, they don't lend themselves to social or physical distancing. Nope. Um, no. You know, no matter, you know, I think most college experiences would confirm that. And so I think that, you know, you're going to see the same kind of, you know, and I, and I think is, you know, to kind of tie these together to some degree and, and look at the politics, there's going to be a lot policy and politically writing on how our August, September and October go. Yeah. In terms and of I the mean, schools, you know, in terms of the public schools, you know, how that shakes out, I think is going to definitely be something that affects a lot of people that are, you know, looking, you know, perhaps not in their presidential vote or, you know, maybe, but to some degree, but, but overall it's going to lend to the mood of the electorate in ways that are important because it's going to be a fundamental experience for so many people, whether you are directly involved with the education with, by having, you know, a child or a college student yeah. or working in education or if it has public health consequences, you know, people are going to be looking around for, you know, to, to, to ask rightly, how did this happen? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's something our colleague Darren Shaw says that I don't always agree with, but I kind of do as I get older, which is, you know, he, he gets asked this question, you know, why don't young people vote? And he has an answer that, that he, you know, usually that speaks to him. And I think this is partially true, this idea of, you know, hey, once you, you know, own a house and pay property taxes and have kids in the public school, you'll vote. And I remember not paying property taxes or having kids in the public school at that point in time and thought, you know, pfft, you know, right. sure. Well, you're a nerd. You voted anyway. <laughs> I, yeah, I voted anyway because I'm a nerd. But, you know, but then you go and you start, you know, you start, you have houses, you know, you have the house, you have your property taxes, but especially you do have kids in the public school. And honestly, it draws you into the politics of the place you live in a way that, you know, very few things do, yeah. honestly. And I mean, I think that, you know, what I've been saying to people, like, you know, especially reporters a lot about all this, you know, is, you know, take, take Donald Trump out of the equation, which is impossible. And, and, you know, he works <laughs> and, he, and he has, he is, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, exerts pressure on both sides of this argument, but take him out and just say, what if we were just living in this time and you had, you know, a democratic or Republican president doesn't matter in the white house and the pandemic response has gone the way it has, right? 4% of the world's population, about a quarter of the world's cases right now, right? The idea that we're going to go back to school in the, in the fall, United States, in yeah. the United States, we're going to go back to school in the fall. Maybe we're going to shut down. We're probably not going to have sports. We're probably not going to have new movies or new TV shows. The economy is going to be dragging along as a, you know, as account, you know, on account of this, there's no reason to expect that president's party to do very well. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a difficult you know, position to be in, but Donald Trump sort of exerts this whole other pressure on top of that, that I think, you know, in normal times, I think, you know, if you had a George W. Bush, I mean, even a George W. Bush in the White House right now, I think you'd see, you know, Texas elected officials create, trying to create more distance and more space from him in a way that they really can't afford to do with Trump at this point, which is sort of a different discussion. But, you know, it does sort of lend to the fact that, you know, I think this school thing is going to be a pretty big consideration on voters' minds come November, unless it just goes, I mean, either, either way, it could go spectacularly well, and I think that'll be a consideration. I think if it goes poor or very poorly, I think that's gonna be a pretty big consideration for people. Yeah, and, and I think that it's also gonna, I mean, it, you know, it's gonna be so noisy. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, I, you know, when we poll in this environment, you know, I think it's gonna contribute you know, I'm of a, I'm a, you know, sort of of mixed minds, whether when we go and ask people, what's the most important issue, they'll say education, but I think right. education is going to be one of, you know, how the, how things go in the schools is going to be 
one of the things that really shapes people's overall sense mm-hmm. of whether things are going well or not, or and thing or whether things are being handled well or not. Right. You yeah. Know, whether well, you, I mean, you know, whether it registers directly as education, and it might, but I, you know, there's so yeah, many. I mean, it's connected to so many other things. It's kind of what we've been talking about. Well, and it's, you know, I mean, we say sometimes, you know, I mean, the idea that you know, if you think about, you know, generally people's interactions with government in real life. You know, the two most kind of fundamental interactions that ordinary people have are with the schools or with the police. And honestly, neither of those, either of those are looking like banner issues to run on right now. Yeah, in terms of feeling good about about how uh, government interactions are going. And how government's Even, running you know, in general. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we should also notice, you know, and I just, you know, flag that this conversation is also coming as, you know, we're seeing reports of a big national increase in positive yeah. test results among children. And this is, you know, adding to the anxiety given that, you know, the fatality rate among children is still very, you know, very low, but not mm-hmm. zero. And, but the increase in positive tests doesn't, you know, comes at a time that people are paying a lot of attention to how the virus is and, and how the pandemic is, is touching children and touching that age cohort just as a public health matter. Mm-hmm. And it comes also, uh, as we're seeing a not entirely explained slowdown in coronavirus testing in the state, and we're going to run out of time, but you know we'll end on this happy note that you know the average number of tests, um, as reported in a couple of different media outlets based on state data, was a little over thirty-six thousand last week, and it was over a little over sixty-two thousand a couple of weeks before, mm-hmm. and. So that means we're going into this time with actually, you know, it seems like less information than we had, than yeah. we were getting. And, the, you know, the testing thing has been a problem since the beginning in Texas, and it's something that has not, they, it has not been licked. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, ultimately, you know, see, we should talk about this just a little bit for a second. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this might be the case. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, urgency's waned a little bit. I mean, we saw the peaks and then, you know, we've seen a decline in the number of, you know, let's say in the increase in new positive cases, even though the, again, the positive rate has been going up. So the share of people who are testing positive out of the number of tests is going up, but the number of tests are going down. You know, we're seeing less, you know, new cases per day, although still a lot. I mean, that's the other thing. Compared to other places in the world, still a ton. Right. But I mean, this is something, you know, we've been talking about for a while, which is, you know, one, you know, the overall environment is that, you know, we've never tested enough in Texas or anywhere, period. That's just, you know, from any sort of public health standpoint for testing to be effective, we're not doing enough. You know, this decrease is, you know, it's probably not nefarious. I think it's just people like it's just people reacting to the environment. So in July, we saw a big, you know, spike in cases uh, coming or out in June, rather coming out of, uh, you know, July, you know, basically the Memorial Day weekend right. and the opening up of the state. Well, and, and it lasted kind of into July, yeah. And it lasted in July and people were getting tested. And then people, you know, people withdrew. One, you know, the state closed down a little bit. People started staying in a little bit more probably because of the surge in cases in the state. And ultimately, you know, if you're asymptomatic and haven't interacted with anybody, there's really little, you know, at least desire to it's, go get in a three-hour line to have a, you know, six to eight inch long q-tip shoved up your nose and then wait two weeks and then wait two weeks for results right and then wait two to two hopefully only two weeks to get results after at which point you would have basically been quarantined and either through the virus or in the hospital or whatever and so 
you know, so I mean, I think actually you highlight another piece of this is one, I think people's concern have probably gone down as they've, you know, interacted less because there's actually more going on out there. But at the same time, also, all the news about the fact that these virus tests aren't actually getting returned to people in any useful amount of time. I mean, I think that would also discourage a lot of people from getting tests. Yeah, almost, so, it almost certainly is. So it's not just that, you know, I mean, it's just not just the availability of the tests, although that was the early issue. It's also the regime in which it's embedded and the execution of it, all of which has been substandard. Yes. <laughs> and with and that. And so with that, <laughs> have a great week, folks. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with more good news on the Second Reading Podcast. Don't forget, you can find this podcast on all the usual outlets. And you can find lots of the underlying data we tend to discuss on this and more at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks, and really do try to have a good week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.